cleanses the temple. Now, apparently, Jesus did this twice in his ministry. Once, very early in his ministry, what we'll be studying today, and then the week that he was crucified, he cleansed the temple again. It's clear that it's not different accounts of the same event. Two different times he cleanses the temple. Let me read this text, and uh, then we'll get started. John chapter 2, beginning with verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Now that word consume there, it literally means eat me up. Zeal for your house will eat me up. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. As I contemplated... uh, what I believe to be the main idea of this passage of Scripture, I was reminded of something else that Jesus said. It's in the Sermon on the Mount. It's in chapter 5 of Matthew. But uh, you'll you'll remember this if you're familiar with the Bible at all. Jesus says, If your eye is single, that's the way it's put in an old translation that many of us grew up with. If your eye is single then your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is not single, then your whole body will be full of darkness. And if the light that is in you is darkness, then how great is that darkness? Now that's an, a proverbial saying, an, enigma, an enigmatic thing. It, it's meant to make you say, what does that mean? And here, I believe, is the meaning of that enig- enigmatic saying. You probably have known people who, when they are allegedly talking to you, they keep looking over your shoulder to see who else is in the room. It's insulting when that happens. You think, hey, I'm right here. A person who is doing that is showing that he has a, a double, he has double vision. He's interested in talking to you to some degree, but if somebody else more interesting comes in, that he wants to get away from you as quickly as he can and go over to this other thing. He's got double vision. My uh, 
my uncle has undergone a series of strokes recently, and he says that he's doing pretty well mentally, but he sees double of everything. That's not a healthy, that's not healthy sight when you see double of everything. <clears throat> so when Jesus says, your eye needs to be single, he is saying, you need to be focused on the true source of light. Make sure that your light, make sure that your eye is focused on God. And when your eye is focused on God and on pleasing Him, then other things are going to take place. Other things are going to just, some of them fall off the, the, the cliff of insignificance. You just don't even worry about those things anymore. I'm reminded when I was a young man, 14, 15 years old, and uh, very eager that I would be a, a successful athlete, I determined that I was going to bring my diet into harmony with my athletic goals. And so I quit drinking soda pop altogether. I never drank pop for 35 years. And then I got to be age 50 and decided life was passing me by and I drank a root beer. (laughs) But uh, for 35 years from age 15 to age 50, I never drank one bottle of pop. It wasn't, it wasn't even hard for me. I, I never looked at a bottle of pop and thought, oh, I'd really like to have that. And uh, because I had, I had a single eye, I was focused on, I want to be a successful athlete. During those years, I also quit, e- quit eating uh, chips and candy and, and all of that. I thought, I'm just going to bring my life into harmony with this goal that I have of being a good athlete. Now, very early in Jesus' life, He asked himself the question, we don't have this in the Bible, but it's obviously true. Very early in his life, he asked himself, what am I here for? What is my purpose in life? And the answer to that question was obvious by the time he was 12 years old. He answered that question by saying, my purpose in life is to glorify God through conforming my will to his will. Now, the fact of the matter is, that's the purpose of everybody's life. And God help us to realize it early and to focus everything that we have, to have a single eye like Jesus had on the answer to this question. Why am I here? What is my purpose in life? And the answer that Jesus found is the answer that each one of us ought to find. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And the only way that you're going to enjoy God forever is if you are in harmony with the way that God thinks. Because there's going to be continual disruption and the grinding of gears in your life as long as you are not in sync and in harmony with God's perspective on the way that life ought to be lived. I wonder if there should be an outside observer who would look into my life or would look into your life. And he had access to what you thought about when your thoughts were free to wonder where they pleased. And he could see those thoughts. And then add to seeing those thoughts. If he could look at the way that you spend your time, when your time is your own, when, when you can do what you want, not when, not when you've got to do your schoolwork, not when you've got to go to work, But when your time is your own and you may do what you please, if the outside observer should look at just that part of your life and that part of your thought process, would he conclude that the main goal of your life was to glorify God by conforming your life to God's will? 
You know, what you do with your free time is a pretty good indication of what you have decided your purpose in life is. And I mean, if you're, if you're spending five or six hours a day playing video games, that reflects poorly on your assessment of the purpose of life. If you're spending a majority of your time chasing after deer or chasing after fish or chasing after turkeys. See, I don't want to just pick on people who do things that I don't do. I don't ever play video games. But I am interested in chasing deer and fish and turkeys. And there has been a time in my life when I was eaten up with that and had a hard time getting that big buck out of my mind. We're just thinking about how can I intercept that big buck. What are you eaten up with? What would an outside observer say that you were eaten up with? Now, I don't want to cause any unnecessary guilt for anybody. I don't want to cause anybody to feel an unnecessary compunction of, oh, I'm wasting my life. I look around this room and I see some of you who are dedicating your lives to be mothers. And you think, oh, what does my life look like? Well, raise those children for God. Give, give your energies to teaching those children how to be decent human beings and how to love the Lord and teaching them the Bible. And, and that indicates that you are investing your life for the glory of God through conforming your will and your life to God's will. And you know, there, there's a way that you can drive, hammer, drive a nail with a hammer to the glory of God. There's a way that you run electrical wire for the glory of God. There's a way that you can fix cars to the glory of God. There's a way that you perform the, fu- the function of a nurse or of a teacher and you do it for the glory of God. One of my favorite poems says, Teach me, my God and King, in all things thee to see. And what I do in anything... To do it as for thee. Not rudely as a beast to run into an action. Don't don't act like an animal. Just do it instinctually. Not rudely as a beast to run into an action. But to make thee prepossessed and give it his perfection. So before I do anything, fix a car. Go hunting. Lord, I give this event to you. Help me to hunt like a son of God. Lord, I give this day to you. Help me to clean up this house to the glory of God. Lord, I give this task to you. Help me to mow the grass like a son of God. Because there's a way that it all can be done to the glory of God. A servant who does his work for the glory of God will do a better job at sweeping the room And then the act itself will become something that you can dedicate to God as an act of worship. A servant with this clause makes drudgery divine. Who sweeps the room as for thy laws makes that and the action fine. This is the famous stone that turneth all to gold. For that which God doth touch and own cannot for less be told. Every act of your life can be an act that is dedicated to God. If you cannot dedicate to God your TV watching, if you cannot dedicate to God your video game playing, if you cannot dedicate to God your deer hunting, 
If you cannot dedicate to God, you're car fixing. Either you need to learn how to do it, but if it can't be done, then it's a waste of your life. Don't do it. Jesus had a laser focus. He had a single eye. He said, I am eaten up with, I'm eaten up with wanting to please God. And in this text of scripture that we have before us today, his consuming, his single eye is manifested in two ways. First of all, he was consumed with his father's house and therefore he cleansed the temple. And then Secondly, we'll see that he was consumed with pleasing his father and therefore he could resist the allurements of popularity. Now when it was time for Jesus to cleanse the temple, because he was so focused on God, he was able to do what was right in spite of the fact that he was going to take some harsh criticism. And when there were many people in Jerusalem who believed in him in a superficial way, He was able to keep his eye focused on God and was therefore invulnerable to the dangers that come from superficial admiration and praise. Now, both of those are pits into which we may easily fall. We may easily be tempted to compromise saying or doing what is right because we are going to incur the displeasure of some people that we really want to be pleased with us. And so we're quiet when we ought to speak up. And we are idle when we ought to be active because we, we don't want that harsh criticism coming to us. And then on the other hand, there is a temptation for us to go a little further than we originally intended because we want the people around us to like us. We want to please our friend group or we want to please someone who has the, who has the authority to advance us in our job. And so we just make these little compromises. And so... In both of these standing strongs, in both of these temptations that that faced Jesus, he stood strong, he sets an example for us, and he teaches us some very important lessons along the way. I think it's interesting that in this one chapter, Jesus uh, stands up for the two institutions that God has instituted. Now, you know, as as good as uh, schools are, Jesus did not institute a school. As good as seminaries might be, Jesus did not institute a seminary. But God did institute marriage, and he did institute the church. And in this chapter, chapter 2, we first of all have Jesus putting his stamp of approval on marriage when he goes to the wedding feast at Cana of Galilee. And then here we have Jesus uh, showing his approval of Not exactly a church, but very something very similar to a church. So in a general sense, we we refer to the people of God as the the church of God. But really in practical day-to-day living, church is what's inside these walls right here. This is a local church. This is where you have actual people who love you. This is where you have actual people that you help to look after and so on. I mean, there, I suppose there are people in what we might call the universal church that we don't even know. But we do have responsibility for the people that are here. The temple was not exactly a church, but a temple was similar to the church in, in a couple of areas. First of all, it was the place where God's truth was emphasized. 
And so, uh, you know, throughout, throughout the, the year, the people of Israel had various uh, meeting places. They would meet in their homes. And at this time in the history of Israel, they had synagogues that they would meet together. But then three times a year, every man was responsible to go to Jerusalem. And there, you can imagine, just the experience itself would confirm some things. The same sort of thing that you probably feel when you go to a fireworks display at the 4th of July. You're filled with a sense of, I'm an American. We're celebrating celebrating, uh, the 4th of July together. Or when, when your heart is moved at the, the singing of the national anthem at the Super Bowl or at some event where you are, maybe just a, a, a small town rodeo type event, but everybody stands up and puts their hands over their heart and sings the national anthem and you say, yeah, I'm glad I'm part of this. I'm glad to be part of America. Well, that sort of thing you know, would have had that kind of confirming effect when everybody went up Jerusalem, like, wow, look at all these people. Just listen to us all when we're singing. How encouraging that is. And there are certain truths that become a little bit foggy through the rest of the year, but then they're made clear here when we come to Jerusalem. And that's the same sort of thing that happens in a local church. You know, you, you have your jobs through the week, and you have various things that you're, you're watching and thinking about, and Some of these truths become a little bit slippery or a little bit foggy, and then you come to uh, your local church, you come to the Bullet Lake Baptist Church, and you look around and you see people and you say, these are my people. I'm glad to be part of this crowd. Uh, And and those truths that are a little bit slippery get, get the moss cleaned off of them. And those, uh, those ideas that become a little bit fuzzy are clarified. Once again, you're in a place where the truth of God is confirmed. Is this a perfect church? Obviously, this is not a perfect church. Was the temple worship at Jerusalem a perfect place? No, there are a whole bunch of cattle and sheep and doves around. There were things that were wrong. But Jesus still said, this is an important thing that God has commanded, and I'm going to try to clean it up. I'm not just going to sit on the outside and criticize and talk about all those hypocrites down there at the temple. I'm going to roll up my sleeves and say, here's something that I can do. And I can pretty much guarantee you he was the only person in the world who could do what he did. But he he decides, "I'm, I'm going to be a part of this, and I'm going to try to be part of the solution. And so he rolled up his sleeves And he made a whip out of cords, and he drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? He overturned the tables of the money changers. Now, I believe that Jesus cleansed the temple for three important reasons. But before I get to those three important reasons, let's just notice that this is Jesus, the nice guy. This is... Jesus, gentle and lowly. I'm not making fun of that. Jesus himself said, I'm meek and lowly in heart. But part of the character of the meek and lowly Jesus was, there are times when I am going to get angry and take care of this situation, and it's not going to be in a gentle and lowly way. 
And uh, I was talking to the boys this past week. We focused our attention on Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 2. And in Romans chapter 2, the writer says to his readers, Do you show contempt for the riches of God's kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you to repentance? And so I urged upon the boys, you know, there are so many good things in your life. Let those good things be an incentive for you to want to please God. In, in one of the Psalms, the Lord says, Do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, but which must be guided with bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. So Nolan Clark was there, and I said, Nolan, you've got horses. Uh, when you're getting ready to ride the horse, what do you do? Well, you put on a saddle. I said, what do you do with its head? Well, you, you put on reins. I said, what, what goes in the horse's mouth? He said, a bit. What's the bit made of? Metal. Why does that help you to guide the horse? He said, because it hurts the horse if he doesn't do what you want him to do. Exactly right. And the Lord says, don't be like that. I can put a bit in your mouth if I need to. That's not my preferred way of dealing with you. God blesses with his right hand, but he spanks with his left hand. God, God is reluctant to bring out the rod. His preferred method is, let my kindness and tolerance and patience lead you into following me. Don't make me have to get out the bit and bridle. But he can. He can make a whip out of cords when he needs to. And that's what Jesus did here. I think that there are three main reasons why Jesus cleansed the temple. The first reason was to make it safe. Make it safe. So it's not like this is a den of thieves that the people who are here. In fact, they probably put a veneer of righteousness on the fact that they had brought cattle and sheep and doves and money exchanging tables into the temple precincts. Because, as we read last week uh, in the scripture reading that we had, God had commanded the people of Israel to bring their tithes to Jerusalem and have a big feast and celebration together. But if they lived too far away that they couldn't bring their tithes that far, then they could turn their tithes into money And once they got to Jerusalem, then they could buy sheep and cattle. They could buy wine. They could uh, buy the things that they needed. And they also had a responsibility to pay a temple tax. And so the temple tax needed to be paid in Hebrew money. And a lot of them were dealing with Roman money. And so when they got there, they had to exchange their Roman money for Hebrew money. And so there were tables that were set up under the auspices of accommodating the crowds who needed to buy their animals and exchange their money there. And I can just imagine that through the years, this this very profitable money-making system got closer and closer to the temple precincts. And then probably one year, all the merchants who were selling the cattle, sheep, and doves and exchanging the money went to the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they said, can we just go into the court of the Gentiles and uh, set up there? I don't know, said, uh, said one of the Pharisees. And then uh, one of the guys puts a gold piece in his hand and says, Well, I just want you to think about it. Shakes hands with him. 
Pharisee pockets that gold piece and says, yeah, I think we can do that. I think that'll work out. It'd be, it'd be nice for the people to have everything that close. We'll just, we'll do that. And so in moves, in move all the cows mooing and the sheep bleeding and the, the, the doves cooing and all of their mess that they're making in the, in the courtyard where Gentiles were actually supposed to be. You know, there, there's just always a problem with adding a, an element of man to whatever God does. This is why it is so important for us to make sure that our worship is prescribed by what the Bible says. Because if we start saying, hey, I've got a good idea. How about we do this? Then what I've noticed through the years is that the man thing becomes the main thing. The man thing becomes the main thing. And so let's just kind of keep man and his direction out of it. Somebody might say, well, you know, you could still do everything that was necessary to be done at the temple. But I'm saying that Jesus, in order to make the temple worship safe, had to get rid of this parasite. I mean, how do you ladies feel when you find that there's a mouse in your kitchen? Do you say, well, he won't eat much. I'm sweeping up anyway. I'll just sweep up after him too. No, that's not the way you think. You think, this is a parasite. Or when you find a tick on your body, do you say, well, he won't eat much. I'll just leave him there. No, no, you, you pull the thing off. You, you don't want that parasite. On. It's unsafe to have mice running around polluting your pantry. It's unsafe to have a tick remaining on your body. And this is why Jesus cleansed the temple. He, he did it to make it safe. A second reason why Jesus cleansed the temple is to make it accessible. I've already mentioned it a couple of times. You know where all these cows and sheep were set up? In an area that was reserved for Gentiles who had converted to Judaism. And so what they were saying was, we don't really care if the Gentiles, the non-Jews, we don't care if they get in here or not. We don't like them anyway. We'd rather have the cows and the sheep than we would have those Gentiles. And so... Jesus, when he cleanses the temple at the end of his ministry, said, It is written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. And you have made it a den of thieves. And so Jesus has in mind, we need to make this space available for non-Jews who want to worship the true God and know that they need to come here to worship. And so Jesus cleansed the temple to make it accessible. And then a third reason why Jesus cleansed the temple is, uh, so he cleansed the temple to make it safe. He cleansed the temple to make it accessible. Thirdly, he cleansed the temple to make it functional. Because with all of this distraction, then the main purpose of temple worship was sidelined. And so Jesus says, well, let's just, let's get rid of of all of these distractions so that when people come to worship at the house of God, they're able to focus and the house of God is able to function the way that it is intended to function. When Jesus cleansed the temple, so those are three important reasons why Jesus cleansed the temple. When Jesus cleansed the temple, he revealed a couple of things about himself First of all, he revealed something that his disciples observed 
zeal for your house will eat me up. So in our translation, we have consume me, but in the, in the Greek, it literally says eat me up. It will eat me up. And uh, so the disciples uh, remembered this when they see Jesus uh, <coughs> cleansing the temple and incurring the displeasure of those who are in charge of things. And they are able to surmise, if he keeps up like this, they're going to kill him. In fact, Jesus goes on. It not only reveals his character, uh, that he is willing to do what is right in spite of incurring the displeasure of, of, of people. It also reveals his program. Did you catch this? So the disciples, uh, the disciples say, wow, he's eaten up with zeal for the house of God. And the Pharisees say, who does this guy think he is? And so they ask him, what miraculous sign will you give that we may uh, see that you have the authority to do all of this? And then Jesus gives an, a, an enigmatic saying, something puzzling. He says, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And they respond, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it again in three days? In fact, in the Greek it's put this way, the emphasis is this. It has taken 46 years to build this temple and you, in three days, are going to build it back? So both you and three days emphasized in the way this is written in the Greek. And you, in three days are going to raise it again. This temple was not Solomon's temple, built on the side of Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple was destroyed in the Babylonian takeover. And then after the Babylonian captivity, there were a group of people who came back under Zerubbabel and Nehemiah, and they built a temple. It's not that temple. But rather, it was a temple built on the same site by Herod the Great, And it had taken about 46 years, right up until the time when Jesus says this, for this building project to be completed. Now, Herod the Great had died in about the year 2 or 3 B.C. So, as I've already explained to you, the the calendar is a little bit off in determining the year 0. Jesus was actually born about the year 4 B.C. Herod was still alive, but he died shortly after that, two or three years later. So Herod's been dead, but now his building project goes on for another 30 years. And it has just been gloriously completed. And now Jesus says, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. But the temple that he had spoken of was his body. Now there are a couple of things to notice here about this, this way that Jesus, Jesus said, this is, the, this is the sign that I'll give you that I, I, am, I have authority to cleanse the temple in the way that I have done. If you kill me, in three days I will rise again. So that's the plain meaning. The Bible says that after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what Jesus had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. So Jesus is revealing the program for his life. And at this point, the disciples do not understand it. In fact, for the next three years... His disciples still do not understand it, that he is going to die and be raised again. It's only when they look back on the fact that the scriptures became clear to them, oh, he had to die, and that led to his resurrection. And because he was raised from the dead, that confirms the validity of his death 
to accomplish the purpose for which it was intended. But they didn't understand that. No, nobody was outside the tomb on Easter morning saying, any minute now, any minute now, he's coming out of there. None of them expected it. It took them all by surprise. But very early in his ministry, Jesus says, you're going to kill me. And it will be a, a dastardly sinful act on your part. It will be more heinous than if you destroyed all of these buildings. Because, in fact, you will be attempting to destroy not merely a physical edifice of gold and silver and stones and wood. You will be, you will be attempting to destroy what all of this symbolizes. And what all of this symbolizes is that a temple is a place where God meets with people. You're going to destroy this temple, and in three days... I will raise myself. I will raise it again. And so in this, in this act of cleansing the temple, he reveals his character that he is impervious to the attacks of his enemies. He also reveals his program. My purpose in life is to glorify God through conforming myself to his will. And his will is that I should be killed Though I'm an innocent man, in that dying, I will be offered as a sacrifice. And when I'm raised again, I, from then on, will function in the way that this building is supposed to function. Because Jesus is now our temple. In Revelation chapter 21 and verse 22, it says, And I saw no temple in the city, for the Lord God and the Lamb are the temple in that city. That city is the kingdom of God. So we don't have a central place where we go and worship. We don't go to Nashville. We don't go to New York City. We don't go to Washington, D.C. Instead, our temple is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the churches of the Lord Jesus Christ constitute the body of Christ. And when we gather here, we are gathered in the name of Jesus, and we meet with God in this manifestation of the body of Christ. So Jesus reveals his character, and he also reveals his program. Now, this, this chapter concludes with something that may be a little puzzling on the surface. It says, now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. Wow, that sounds great, doesn't it? That's what you're supposed to do if you're going to become a Christian. You've got to believe in his name. But then notice what comes next. But Jesus did not entrust himself to them, for he knew what was in a man. He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. So that tells us, because Jesus would... It says they believed in him, but Jesus wouldn't believe in them. That tells us that Jesus recognized that their approval of him was superficial. And when it says that he knew what was in a man. He knew that people are fickle. People easily change their mind, as was the case with this group of superficial believers. Later on in John chapter 6, we read that after Jesus had said some hard things, that many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. They're called disciples. Many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Later in the Gospel of John, 
Jesus says to the Jews who had believed in him. That's what it says in John 8. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And they immediately start to fuss with him. We're Abraham's descendants that have never been slaves to anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. And so the Bible recognizes what all of us know. That there's a way that you can believe the facts about Jesus. You can even believe that he is the Messiah the way that these people did. And Jesus still has not entrusted himself to you. Now, this is, this is something that I don't want you to obsess over, but it's important to think about. You say, you Christians say, that you have entrusted yourself to Jesus. Is there any evidence that he has entrusted himself to you? Has he made a difference in your life? Let me, let me say that there are plenty of times when I feel like I'm in this by myself. There are plenty of times when I feel like God is a million miles away. And so does the psalmist. We just read in Psalm 69 a few minutes ago, God, where are you? I feel like I'm sinking in the mud and the water is coming over me and I've barely got a little piece of face sucking air trying to stay alive. Where are you? There are times when you feel like that in the Christian life. But in those times, the Lord is near. In those times, if you really belong to him, then he is near. On the last day, Jesus says that there will be many people who appear before him and and they will say to him, Lord, Lord, didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we do many miraculous works in your name? And then I will say to them, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. And that's Jesus' way of saying, we were not really friends. When I worked at the seminary, there was a guy there who was really interested in hunting. And uh, he was an administrator. When he came to the school, he said, hey, I hear you're the go-to guy for hunting. I said, yeah, I'll take you hunting. And so I did. I took, him, I took him to the cabin a couple of times. And, you know, if we go to the cabin together, we're good. We are friends. I took him out to, uh, I took him hunting at some other, oh, we went hunting several times. But I noticed something that he would never pay any attention to me at school. You know, in, in chapel services, when there were important people speaking, he'd make a beeline for those important people, just never had any time for me. He's not there now, so you people who are students there. He's been gone for several years. And I finally came to the conclusion. I said, you know, we're not friends. He just using me to take him hunting. We're really not friends. And I think that's what Jesus says to these these people on the last day. You got some kind of credit because you were doing these things in my name, but we were not friends. Friends don't act like that. Friends don't treat me that way. Friends don't shut up when somebody says, are you a follower of Jesus and you just be quiet. Friends don't act that way. Jesus does gladly and heartily entrust himself to people who eagerly give themselves to him unreservedly, looking to him and saying, Lord, from now on, you and I are together. 
right or wrong, sink or swim, I'm your man. I'm your girl. If I have to stand alone for a while, Jesus, stand with me. But I'm standing with you. God help me. I'm standing with you. And that is just in a, in a broad way what every single person in this room needs to do. If you've done it before, you need to do it afresh. And say, I, I, I devote myself afresh and anew to this great Savior. Help me to be faithful to you. Jesus, I want to be your friend. I don't want just to know you. I want to be known by you. I want you to trust yourself to me in the way that I trust myself to you. Jim Bob, come and lead us in a concluding hymn.